Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Welcome to today's episode of the Food Junkies podcast. Today, Clarissa and myself sit down with Mike Collins. Mike Collins is a former sugar addict and takes his addiction very seriously. For the past 30 years, he has not consumed sugar in any form, at least not intentionally. His interest in sugar addiction began in the early days of his recovery from substance use disorder. As he weaned himself off other substances, he noticed that his relationship to and his consumption of sugar was beginning to resemble his other addictions. Curious and concerned, he started to talk about this with his recovery buddies. This led him to decide to quit sugar, and with the help of some amazing mentors, after many years of successfully starting, scaling, and selling online businesses, Mike decided that what really made him happy was helping other people break their addiction of all kinds and come out with the other side happier and healthier. So in today's episode, we talk about Mike's aha moment, the story behind the sugar-free man, how Mike works with clients, how he helps people get past the food. He shares something he believed early on in his career that has since changed. He shares what factors he sees in clients that leads to them doing well in recovery and the challenges clients face. We all sit on the board for the Food Addiction Institute, so we talk about our recent submission to the World Health Organization for the official recognition of food addiction as a legitimate diagnosis. We talk about Mike's hopes for the future of food addiction treatment, and don't miss how Mike answers our signature question. Welcome, Mike. Mike, thank you again for being here. For those listeners who may have never heard your story or know who you are, will you just share with them your aha moment with the food, the sugar? Yeah, just give us your story, if you would. Yeah, this story, this part of it is, you know, I've told a couple of times before, but I thought I grew up as a regular kid, right? I mean, I was, you know, my mom was a sugar junkie and my favorite sugar junkie. And it's, it's kind of a sad story at the beginning, but I think it's worth telling. And it leads into everything all of us do is her mother died when she was just eight years old, my grandmother. And they had to move in with her aunt her, and they owned the country store across the way. And they said, anytime my mom came into that store, just give her whatever she wants. And so it was a nice gesture for a child who just lost her mom at eight years old, but it set up a lifetime of sugar addiction, basically. And she really believed that sugar was love. I mean, this is something that I grew up with. I think she died feeling this way. I mean, I think at the end, she had Alzheimer's. And I think she died of sugar addiction. I really believe it. I was there for a couple of years and it was, she just couldn't eat real food. She just wanted to eat sugar at the end when there was no filter with the Alzheimer's. And so fast forward, I thought I was a regular kid and I ran into beer at 13 or 14, right? Well, I, this is important and you guys both know this, but that changed my state for sure. I knew for a fact. I didn't know sugar was changing my state as a kid. I just didn't realize it. A great video on YouTube about Eric Clapton talking about this. Have you heard that? You've seen this video? Yeah. So anyway, you know, he knew it was changing his state, right? It wasn't the heroin, right? Anyway, I read a book called Sugar Blues. And if you're looking for an aha moment, that was it. And I was just so, well, fast forward, I got sober at 28, okay, from alcohol and drugs. And I read that book and I just said, this is me. You know, I mean, 
I loved the history lesson. I loved it all. And I was treating sugar just like alcohol and drugs. So I raised a couple of kids sugar-free. How I talked my wife at the time into it, I have no idea. But anyway, they never had sugar from the womb until they were six years old. And only once outside birthday parties after that. And they always said I should write a book on sugar. And I so I did in 17 or 18 and did well on Amazon. And since 2000, I bought the name sugaraddiction.com in 2009 or 10. And I gave out great information, but no one really took it and ran with it. It wasn't until we started coaching and that kind of stuff in about four years ago that it really took off. So that's the short version. That's the podcast version. That, that kind of brings up more questions than it answers. But So did you get any support when you were quitting sugar in order to be able to refrain from it? Or was it just the book that kind of was the oh, aha moment? A, that's a great question in that I did not really. It took me, I'm not exaggerating, like two years, three years. I would start and stop, start and stop, start and stop. And I did run across a guy who was kind of ahead of his time. He was a trainer, right? And so he talked, we talked a little bit about it. And so I did have one person that I could talk to about it. But other than that, even, and this is to this day, I experienced this, even the folks, as a matter of fact, I was chastised quite a bit in 12-step recovery. I used to go, <laughs> I used to go to these black belt men, men's meetings, right? And I'd talk a little bit about the sugar, and they'd say, are you sober today, Mike? And I'd say, yeah. I'd say, don't worry about the damn sugar. And these are people that are gaining, like, they would come in and gain 20, 30, 40 pounds immediately in 12-month period. And so, yeah, not a lot, but it took a while, and it didn't have anything to do with my other recovery. It was just back and forth, basically. So then how did you become the sugar-free man, and when did that kind of <laughs> transpire? The sugar-free man, here's what happened. And this is a true story is that, and I think some of your other questions may talk about this, but in doing what I did from 2010, putting the website up with the name sugaraddiction.com, at the time, the sugar organization, sugar.org, was advertising on Google that sugar addiction did not exist. So, and Facebook does not like the term sugar addiction. And what I found is the average person, the harmful user, they don't think they're an addict. And so it's not like I think I had to rebrand. I had to have something that was less ominous for people that they didn't want it. I mean, obviously, we all know that denial is a construct in addiction that people don't. They think it's a guy under a bridge with a brown paper bag. They do not think of themselves as an addict. The term was offensive. And if you look at the substance use disorder world, they're eliminating that word and addict and addiction and junkie and all that they use substance use disorder. And so I believe that that is coming in our world. And so the sugar-free man was born out of an attempt to get more harmful users to understand that maybe it's a little more than harmful use. So that's the, I can talk to you a lot about branding and all that kind of businessy stuff, but that's really why it happened. Well, it's super clever. And it certainly now, whenever Sugar Free Man comes up, I know it's you. And I think <laughs> I just, I love that I can put a face to the name and know that there's some quality information and support and guidance there. So Will you tell our listeners how you do work with clients? Is it primarily one-on-one? -on -one? Do you do groups? Obviously, you host the Quit Sugar Summit. Talk to us about how you give your services to the world. 
Yeah, no, I started like you guys in late state food addiction. I work with people one-on-one for a long time, you know, one-on-one coaching. And today we're building more of a platform for the detox and then to move people into coaching that self-identify as you know, an addict is the right word. I mean, a lot of bitten and a lot of people, they don't want to change that word. I mean, I'm of the camp that it needs changing into like sugar use disorder or something like that. But when people self-identify, then we move them into coaching. But I'm trying to broaden public awareness of sugar in general. And every day I do this work, I know in my heart that sugar is a powerful psychoactive drug that people can't quit without some level of at least awareness or understanding. So I try to bring that awareness and then move the folks where they need to be as far as their coaching or their training. And I find that groups, regardless of where you are, whether you're a harmful user trying to quit a little bit, or you're a stone cold addict like myself, and some of my other folks, you're going to need a group anyway. And that some people aren't joiners, but when they finally join a group, it's usually they come and left two or three times. <laughs> That's when they finally decide, okay, I'll try it your way. Kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, we have a little bit of for everybody, I guess, is the answer to the question. No, that's great. So it sounds like you work with both harmful users and addicts. And I do agree with what you're saying that addiction can be a helpful world for some people and for others, it can make them feel shame and guilt and afraid to talk about this disease and keep them stuck in it. And so I think it's most important that everybody listening identify like what works for you and what makes you feel comfortable. And then you can do that. So we have found many clients get stuck on the food plan. How do you help (laughs) clients get past the food part of the work and into the actual work of changing everything else about their life in recovery? This is excellent. You guys are asking questions that like the average fitness podcaster does not ask because everybody comes in looking for a food plan and an exercise plan. <laughs> like, just give me a food plan. I don't want to know about this feeling stuff. I don't know about this emotion stuff. I don't want to know about this ACEs, this adverse childhood experiences. I don't want to know about trauma. I don't want to know about stress. They don't think it applies to them, right? So the question is much more nuanced than the answer is much more nuanced than you think. It's like, I literally have to trick people. And I'm telling you this honestly as I can. I have to tell little white lies that they're getting this kind of detox, that they're coming in and they're going to just have a reset for their life. And then then they self-assort for themselves. They start to decide that they're addicts. And honestly, and I can tell you, and maybe this is the answer you're fishing for, change in sugar recovery and change in your use or abuse of sugar has absolutely almost 100% nothing to do with the food. Look, you got to eat whole food. You can't eat sugar. You can't eat flour. But people can't make this connection. I mean, 10,000 people in a Facebook group and all day, every day, they don't read the book. They just start talking. What can I eat? What can I, can I eat this? There's a picture of this monk fruit that it goes on and on and on and never ends. And I think that's not my lot in life, but I think that's the message that I need to continue to say or repeat until people self-sort into I'm an addict or I'm a harmful user and here's what I need to do to change. So 
yeah, it's a touchy subject and I'm, I've accepted it now and I'm okay with it, but a repetitive statement, it doesn't have anything to do with the food. Very little just, to do with the food. <laughs> absolutely. So just to be clear, you kind of let people, you just keep your message going. It has nothing to do with the food. This right. really isn't about whatever. And then when people self-sort, then those who are like, okay, this is addiction or substance use disorder, whatever, right. then you work on taking the action. Correct. Exactly. And we have what we call retreads. Okay. This is in the 12 step world, they call it research and development. (laughs) So people come in, they get grit their teeth and white knuckle 20 days, right? And then it's their birthday or it's Christmas or whatever. And then they're gone for six months and they gain that all that weight back and then they come back and then they do it again and again until we just make that first appearance, that first introduction so welcoming that they know they'd be okay coming back if they screwed up. And everybody's timing is when it is, right? It's like it takes every sweet treat it takes to get them where they need to go. So yeah, I just try and make it welcoming so that they will come back if this is not their time. So then to talk a little bit about the food, how do you help those clients who have very limited resources or live in food deserts to really navigate because obviously, like you said, no sugar, no flour, like there's an abstinence component to your program or to, to how you work with people, especially yeah. when they're identifying as having addiction. So how do you help them navigate those challenges? That's a good, I mean, this is important in society. And one of the things I take a, I take a lesson from a woman in South Africa who has a million people on a Facebook group and she's written a book. She has some resources and she's written a book on how to eat this way inexpensively and to source this stuff inexpensively. And we try and do that. We're woefully behind on that because honestly, just in a demographics way, the early adopters do have the resources. And so we've got to work. I love to quote, uh, create your vision and work with who shows up. And currently, the folks do have resources, but I would like to go, in business terms, down market to uh, childbearing age women, to men, and to people who don't have the resources. And I think that's all part of my awareness project or my awareness, make getting awareness out there. So it is an issue, but it's not one yet that is front and center for me, simply because the people aren't showing up and self-identifying. Yeah, so I definitely think that awareness piece is key in the sugar addiction recovery world. And it sounds to me like from what you're saying, you obviously have a higher demographic of women that access your programs or that you see show up in the Facebook group. Do you have then? And then how do you work differently with women and men? You know, it's it's crazy. And I don't even get it, but we have almost zero men. I mean, very close to zero men. We have some and uh, it's great. But not that they're more stubborn, but A, they lose weight quicker. Some of them are athletes. I'm always, I think that the producers of the Biggest Loser stuff, they shop, they screen for ex-athletes, even men and women, because they have a muscle memory and they use kind of exercise addiction, which is good because they get through the nasty withdrawals and their body comes back quicker and they have a little more success quicker and women lose weight a little slower. So the men do pretty well when they show up but they don't show up very often. So that's no different. It's still abstinence. You know, they still got to quit stuff. <laughs> Program's no different. It's, they seem to have a quicker response. 
it's just surprising to hear that because I feel like, you know, right, like you attract certain people to you, right? As a clinician, as a coach, as whoever, because you're putting your message out there, whatever that might be. But I also feel like me as a female, I feel like I attract more women. I guess my assumption was, hey, Mike probably attracts more men because maybe they mm-hmm. identify more with his story. And women I'm are hearing smarter. that's not. Uh, <laughs> I swear I think, to God. But I think you said something really important there about like the <laughs> exercise addiction and like these like athletes and this genetic predisposition to lose weight more quickly and how then like the message can kind of get murky and it becomes more like about like the calories in, calories out. Or if I just go back to my glory days of being a wrestler and cutting weight and all these things. I mean, can you speak a little more about like how those other outlets really show up in some of these clients that you've worked with over the years? Well, it's the old whack-a-mole thing. It's like you drop one, you pick up another. I think Bitten calls it the use disorder, addiction use disorder or something. And I lived it. I mean, you drop one, you pick up whatever, you know, money, shopping. If something else comes flooding in to to, uh, if you don't realize that addiction is addiction is addiction. I mean, if you don't realize that Sugar is a powerful analgesic psychoactive drug that acts on the nucleus accumbens and has been your emotional management system since the womb, probably definitely since you were one years old or younger. If you don't realize that, and the science in the last five years proves this out, it's like this, whatever the dopamine delivery system, let's call it that, is whether it's sugar abuse or shopping abuse or sex or gambling, whatever. Dopamine doesn't discriminate, okay? It could be illicit sex. It could be illegal gambling. It could be illegal drugs. Whatever it was trained to get, its the brain was trained to get its dopamine hit, it's going to take, okay? And if you take away its sugar and don't realize what you were doing, you're going to fall back to that process. I mean, another, a new pro. You're going to pick up going to the casino, whatever it is, it's going to, until you realize that you have been using sugar to manage your emotional systems, your dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, GABA, your adrenals, oxytocin, even your uh, endorphins have been hijacked by this drug. If you don't realize that and put a stop to it by changing out that system, literally taking out the go setting yourself back to the factory operating system that the human being was supposed to and the brain reward system was supposed to have you're going to keep repeating either sugar or another addiction sugar is no different i get pissed off that it doesn't get the respect you know rodney dangerfield i get no respect it gets no respect as a drug of addiction as powerful and as dangerous and as deadly as any other substance use or process addiction sorry i'm off my soapbox i'm going to take a drink of water while you ask the next question yeah no not at all i just to follow up with that because clarissa and i talk about this with other guests with each other often we you know it feels like we spend a lot of time educating our clients and listeners on everything that you just said right? The, how it interacts in our brain and the dopamine reward system and oxytocin and serotonin and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And then what you said with, it doesn't get the same respect. And I mean, I am a licensed addiction counselor. I have worked with methamphetamine addicts, heroin addicts, Mm -hmm. bath salts, hairspray, bugs, you name it. If somebody can get high or some sort of (laughs) result from it that they want, they will use it. Right. And I don't have to spend the same amount of hours educating these folks on all of that. Like I have to with 
the sugar or with the food. Mm-hmm. What do you, I mean, do you think that that's it's cultural? It's cultural. It's a, Dr. Leslie, I don't know if somebody, but it's genuinely a evolutionary wrong turn that got socialized, that got ingrained in society. And I love the history. I'm a big history buff. Dr. Noakes is a big history buff. The Fat Keys are big history buffs, especially Belinda. You should get them on your show. The history of the evolution of how we, I can't look as, we can't figure out how we get out of this problem until we figure out how we got in it as an individual and as a society. And the bottom line is for 300 years, England grew this gigantic takeover, literally take over the entire world from India and the Philippines all the way to the Americas on the money on the backs of slavery and sugar. And that evolution ended up where we are today, where everything from birth to death has sugar. Problem is, starting with the high fructose corn syrup and now landing here, but the science in the last five years has proven, like seatbelts in the cars, like smoking, it's like the science says, no, this can't continue. This is not sustainable as a race, as a society, as a group, as human beings. And that change is going to take 20 or 30 years for the science to catch up with what the culture created over 300, 400 years. So it's a, I love that part of the topic, but some people don't want to delve that far into it and pull back to the 40,000 foot view and say, okay, I see how we got here. Now, how do I get out of it as an individual and how do we help society get out of it? So it's just cultural. That's the reason people can't. They're likely I'd say 95 out of 100 times, they're the only person even in the house that they live in who has come to this conclusion that they need to do something about this in their life. And so everybody, I heard something the other day you guys are like, so if you quit sugar, you get a support. You got, all right, good job. Quit drinking. All right. Sugar is the only thing you quit that you people say, what? Why? Please? Come on. I baked it. You know, it's like, it's totally reversed, right? Right now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, they're going to say, you know, they used to give sugar to kids, right? I mean, we have to borrow from the beauty of tomorrow to enroll ourselves in the activities of today, which is we got to keep saying the same things over and over and over. K Street, Washington, D.C., what they have decided, these gigantic nonprofits in the sugar excuse me, in the alcohol and drug stigma reduction world have decided that the only way that this works is that people tell their story over and over and over. So you guys are doing a great service and you just keep doing it. I keep doing it until people catch on. This is, again, there's tens of millions of dollars in nonprofits in substance use disorder world It's only real goal, only real job of those nonprofits is to get people to tell their stories, congressmen, rock stars, businessmen, to tell the story and exactly what we're doing here. So, Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think like what you're saying about the history of sugar makes so much sense, how it's so slippery and sneaky and seductive and normalized. And I like, I was talking about this the other day with all these like, NFL and hockey teams like changing their names because the names that they had are now deemed racist. And I think 
that you can't fault those teams for what their names were back in the day, but now they know better. And so they have to do better. And I think that's the way that sugar is going to be approached. We're just not there yet. And so you're right. By doing this, this really does help get the word out, the awareness, and allow those individuals who are really struggling to make that connection and hopefully start to heal. And definitely to help address the obesity issue and the chronic health issue. And I'm sure I know both Molly and I can say, we say it's not about the food and it's not about the weight and it's always about the food and the weight. And so I'd love to know your approach about how do you work with clients when it's all about the number on the scale. It's all about the size of the clothes. It's like, it's not working because I'm not losing weight. How do you mm. work with that? Yeah, I get that all the time. I had somebody break into a meeting the other day. It's like, I'm 30 days. I haven't lost any weight. You know, they're like raging. It's a tough one. I mean, it really genuinely is a tough one because, you know, you guys know the saying, come for the vanity, stay for the sanity, right? It's like, The number one, and I guess I got to harken back to the participation of the success stories. It's a little bit like spinning plates. You got to get some success stories. to, And so the success stories have to transmit via photographs and their story that I thought the same thing, but, you know, like a salesman, right? I thought the same thing, but here's what I found. I have a great testimonial of a woman this woman was a Weight Watchers leader in two different decades, went to Weight Watchers the first time at 16 with her mother. She was illegal, became a Weight Watchers leader, lost the same 50 pounds like 10 times up and down and counted out her programs that she had been on, 18 of them, right? And at the end, I said, Bethany, like, why, how this time? Why is it stuck this time for 18 months? And, you know, you've kept the weight off for a year of that. And she said, addiction, Mike. I was above addiction. I didn't believe it was me. And that, I think, is the adjustment that people have to make by changing tribes. Not changing necessarily, not leaving their tribe, but they're joining another tribe. And, you know, when you look at the success of the 12 Steps, probably the largest personal development group in the ever to be born on this planet, you can leave out the sayings and the spirituality and the steps. But the part that worked was the part where they were together in a community and the folks who had already traveled this path told the new folks, this is what I was like and this is what I'm like today. It's not me. My job is to create the vessel where these people can interact. My job is to create the chalice, the platform where these people can interact. And yes, there's kind of rules and kind of you can't, you got to eat whole food and everything. But at the end of the day, it's really a peer recovery structure. It's people that have already done it, helping people that want to do it. It's not. I think that's a great way to do it because Clarissa and I are currently part of a research study with Jen Unwin and a few other professionals, Uh and we're running our beta group. And what we're finding is that the feedback that we've been getting is that they would prefer to hear less from the other group participants and more from the professionals. And we realized, okay, for our next go round, this has to change because what you're saying, right? It's more powerful to hear it from the peers. You, it sounds to me like you don't go in there and you're like, it's not about the weight. It's not about the scale and diet culture, this and trauma, that it's diet trauma, that it's more 
preparing them or asking somebody who's walked that path to share their story. So that newcomer can hear that and go, oh, okay, there might be something to this. Is that accurate? That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. And to structure it in such a way that the peer folks have some training or some education that they're not totally flying blind. My problem a little bit with the 12-step sponsorship model is that it's just, uh, <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of negatives that can happen. And people don't realize that one of the fastest growing segments of the substance use disorder world is this peer recovery a construct where, you know, they go to emergency rooms, they, they work at a doctor's office, they, you know, treatment centers for sure. But, and again, it's the only thing that's ever worked in the long run. I mean, they've tried whatever, medically assisted treatment, they've tried almost everything and they have chronically low uh, success rates, but people, and this is, this extends as well to diabetes and heart disease. People that have a heart attack, have open heart surgery and join a peer group, a peer recovery group proven over and over have better recovery rates, right? We're herd animals. Like we like to do things together. The problem is the question is the solution is the structure is you have to have the peers who express a desire to help have a little bit of training, not necessarily become a full-fledged coach or a full-fledged professional, but they have a little bit of a training. Yeah. Peer support specialist. Absolutely. I mean, that role is huge in substance use disorder world. And like you said, in, in other areas, you know, whether it be chronic illness or heart attack recovery, grief and loss groups, absolutely. Yeah, there's absolutely. there's something very powerful and healing. And I remember I had a mentor and she always used to say, because I would get like upset or something about, oh, the group went so terrible. I did a bad job, you know, whatever. And she would always be like, the power of the group is so much bigger than you, Molly. Anything that happened in that group was supposed to happen in that group because somebody needed to hear it. And I struggled to believe that for a while, but now I'm at this point where I'm like, absolutely. Whatever happens, happens. Whatever happens in this interview was supposed to happen. Whatever happens Mm -hmm. in a group setting was supposed to, somebody had to hear something that was said, even if in my mind it was wrong or or I'm doing it wrong or something along those lines. So I think it's beautiful. I have the same trying to let go of they're saying the wrong thing or whatever. Yeah. You're like, Oh no, no, no. But yeah, Yeah. you have to let it happen organically and maybe do some damage control if needed. But for the most part, there is some real power in that. So speaking of that, then what is something at this point in your career or on this path for you, you know, what is something you believed early on that now has changed for you with all this experience of working with clients? Like what have you found maybe you need to be more flexible with or more rigid about? Yeah, no, that's a good one. So I always use, again, and people, they don't like my analogies or my comparisons or even, this is people who, and I I take that back, this is people who have understanding of addiction and stuff. I started out as an abstinence-based guy. When I first got sober, if you were using Suboxone or Methadone, you were not clean. And so I believe that when the opioid crisis came along, I realized you had to be alive to recover. And so if you need Suboxone, then you need something. And so I have taken that softer approach to sugar and abstinence. And it's like, if you get five days and go out and binge on sugar, well, that's five days of harm reduction. That's five days your body got to rest and you probably got beat up even worse on day six after the bin. And so 
you start to realize and you come back. We stopped counting days a long time ago. Some people still count them and it's good. And we give out awards for 30 and 60 and 90 and la 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 in a year and all that because it's some people want to. I could not tell you the day I quit sugar. I don't even have the right year. I, I, I got a kind of a, because of the age of my children, I kind of know like when. And I think this is, this is important, this harm reduction part, this getting us into the harmful users. And I love that term. I'm glad that it was surfaced, if you will. Getting into the general culture and understanding that any amount of reduction is a positive. And if they self-sort into someone who feels they have an addiction issue or addictive issue, then we'll work with that then. But I just want to get the awareness, the top of the funnel in business terms, you know, the top of the thing to more people. And I think that's that harm reduction. I'd like to come up with a better word, try and move away from the words that are used in the substance use disorder world. But that one works for now. Yeah, that's funny. I was talking a bit about this exact thing, this yeah. terminology the other yeah. day, because I think I can definitely relate to your experience. You know, I started very abstinence based, but it can be such a barrier for people who aren't just there yet. And yeah. both Molly and I are harm reduction clinicians. And it really, once people get that taste of recovery and like yeah. abstinence, like yeah. they are so much more motivated to go towards it. And so I just, I, I'm so grateful you're in this space with us, like helping people make that change and accepting them wherever they're at and with whatever they're willing to work on. In your years of experience, can you tell us what is the number one factor you've seen for the clients that you're working with? for them to be successful, is there one thing that you've kind of identified in these individuals that has made them successful? You know, people ask me what my business model is. I tell them I sort for people that are ready. <laughs> it's not really rocket science. It's like, but what I have found, and this is kind of interesting, I think, in just general overview and some surveys and stuff, is that right now, where we are in history, the people are early adopters, as they say in the tech industry. They are pioneers. You go back to their home. They're the first person to graduate college. They're the best mechanic in town. They're the best whatever, you know, the first one to go away to college. There's some, the first one to, you know, do good in athletics or whatever. They've joined some other tribe outside of their family of origin, and they're not afraid to do their own research in a little bit to some level go against the grain of what is today's society and to an extent their own family. They have to say, I went to law school, mom, you need to give me that respect. And mom, I'm not their dad, I'm not doing sugar, whatever it is, you've got to be able to have at least that much self-esteem or whatever it is, boundaries that you've done in something else that you can transfer over here. Because of the things we've been talking about, the societal pressure and the societal acceptance, like you can give this stuff to a one-year-old with no moral, legal, or ethical responsibility. So when it comes to, and think about it, people that come to you, I'm sure, and definitely to me, they have a little credibility issue. <laughs> they've quit. They've had some diet going on for the last 20 years. And when they start a new one, the family goes, nah, you know, it's just whatever. So they have to have had and still they have to have that pioneer spirit. They have to have that little bit of success in something else in their life that they can transmit 
or transmute over to this. So that's the number one thing that I find in a success story currently. Now, hopefully that we push past the early adopters and that there's so many stories out there of people that have lost 100 pounds and, and that everybody that has reduced carbohydrates in their life has had positive effects, then it that's not as necessary. But currently, I think that's a necessity. Yeah, I think I could probably say, I feel like I've had similar experience with clients over the years and not just with the sugar or flour processed foods with across the board with any substance use disorder I've worked with or other mental health concern, right? Is that in some way they're the black sheep, right? Like you said, like they're the first sure. to say no to this or yes to that or do that. But then they also have like some resilience or some grit. They've got something going on in some other area of their life that as soon as we kind of plug into that and we're like, okay, look at you did this over here. We're just going to use that same mentality, those same behavior changes. We're just going to use it over here in this area of your life. And it's like this light bulb goes on, right? Because they've never really considered because it's always felt so separate. Oh, I'm really good at being a mechanic, but they've never really considered, oh, I could also be really good at recovery stuff or yeah. whatever, right? Sure. It doesn't translate for them. So we get to be their prefrontal cortex, be their mirror and just say like, <laughs> if you're doing it over here, why can't you do it over there? And yeah, so I love that answer so much. I, I agree. So here's a really, I mean, and I, I just, I love this question and I, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. But so we just released episode or episode 31 is coming out this Friday for us. So right. we're halfway through the year, at least more, even more than in it's always interesting to hear people's stories. And, and obviously we've gotten some years and we're getting to know more about how you work with clients. What do you consider has been your most unique contribution to the field of food addiction? Mm. You, you've been in this, you're a leader, Mike, you've been around <laughs> longer to have this book come out in 2010, you know, all those things. I mean, yeah, our field is relatively new. We're in, we're in our infancy. So what, what's been that, I, I, that unique I'm, contribution? I'm reminded of Liam Nielsen and Taken. I have a special skill set, and I will find you, and I will kill you. <laughs> and for 20 years, I made my living online, building awareness and moving people through processes. And I think it's uh, my unique position is the one who helps build the awareness through the summits, through the sugar-free man, hopefully. I've got a lot of plans for that. And in general, I just bought sugardetox.com. I mean, I'm putting my money where my mouth is kind of thing to, and I'm a little scared. Obviously, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm a little nervous about it. I asked Robert Lustig, I said, Rob, are you not afraid of these guys? He goes, he goes, Mike, I got the science behind me. I'm not afraid of anybody. It's like they could bring whatever they want and I'll show the science. And I know you guys have heard the story of Tim Noakes and Gary Fetke, both of whom, Australia and New Zealand, have been attacked by their medical boards, tried to take their medical licenses, and both of them were victorious in South Africa and in Australia. And I think that kind of come up and says coming, but I really, somebody's going to, I heard, uh, I don't know if you know the guy, Ken Berry. No, no. Yeah, it was Ken Berry. He's like at a low carb conference. He goes, I want to be that guy. I want them to come for my license. I, I Bring it, you know? And so I think that the sugar producers are, and I don't, honestly, I want to tell you, I don't have any issues with the sugar producers. Like you said before, they were lived in a different time period with the analogy with the sports teams. It's like they we lived in a different time. They had shareholder value to maximize, right? But the world is changing and I feel like the awareness is not there. And so every day I try and build the awareness. 
yes, luckily I got started in late stage food addicts and I can move people through to you guys or whatever, if that doesn't work with what we're, you know, what we got planned. But I just want to build the awareness of, and this is hard. I did not sign up to be the anti-candy man. I did not sign up to be the guy to ruin birthday parties. And every time, this is a true story. I went to my, I discovered some relatives here in California that I had heard about and never met. Well, they're in their 80s and one's 93. They're older. They're my mother's first cousins. They're wonderful people, right? So I went to dinner with them or brunch with them a couple of days ago. And literally when the conversation turns to what you eat and what you do for a living and this kind of stuff, all of a sudden the entire table stops Everything is focused on this. Well, what about this? I eat that, you know, like that, right? And this is going to be like this forever. And so that vehicle to build awareness about this issue and how sugar addiction or sugar is a much more powerful than we ever believed it to be as we grew up is just a constant, as we've talked about the whole podcast, it's just a constant awareness thing. It's like, I don't know if you guys know this, but the internet blew up last year when J-Lo and A-Rod, when they were still dating, did a 10-day quit sugar deal. And recently, Rebel Wilson, same thing. So the power of that awareness of somebody who's well-known doing this is going to happen, is going to keep happening, and someone's going to, like Rebel, lose 60 or 80 pounds and look like a different person, and this is going to keep happening, and I just want to keep pouring gasoline on that fire with the summits to make the awareness larger. So that's what I think my contribution is. No, and I'll say I you think, better. Yeah. Oh, go, go ahead, Clarissa. No, I was going to say, I just love that you're saying that about that star power because Molly and I were just talking about that prior to jumping on with you. It's like Brene Brown does No Sugar, No Flour. Yeah. And Demi Lovato is, you know, yeah. got some food stuff. And so if we could just get one of these individuals to come alongside us and like propel us forward, it yeah. could really make a huge difference. And I yeah. think you're so right. I think probably both Molly and I, I know when I go to the grocery store, if there's people in there, they are hiding their carts from me. You know, we get seen (laughs) as the sugar sheriff and like, you know, it's really, it's not, I'm not trying to change them. That's not my business. I'm myself shopping at the store, not looking, not judging, but we just get seen as that. And I think it's because every single person struggles with their relationship with sugar just none of us have the words to talk about it, right? Except yeah. the ones where it's gotten to diabetes, chronic disease, obesity, and life has become so unmanageable and it has to get that way before we start to make that change. Mm. But speaking of the awareness piece, we also on the board of the Food Addiction Institute. And as you know, we recently submitted the application to the International Classification of Diseases for the World Health Organization in order to recognize food Food addiction. And so what are your thoughts about whether, do you see that happening in our lifetime or mm. what do you think from what you've seen starting on in this to where we are now, yeah. where do you see that going? Yeah, no, I hope it happens in our lifetime, but it happens a lot sooner than in our lifetime in the next decade or so. There needs to be, I think the science is just going to overwhelm it. It's going to roller, it's going to uh, steamroll right over it. It's just going to say enough. To, I mean, we get it now. And the true story, Robert Lustig, I've been interviewing him for like four years now. And the first 
two years all about ghrelin and, and all this other science. So I said, Rob, for this upcoming summer, I said, look, you got a chapter in your book about addiction. And he goes, you never had that before. And you gave credit to Joan Ifland in the resources part. And he says, you know, I am a neuroscientist and I just came to this. Like I was primed for this information. And you're right. I didn't have that piece of the puzzle. And now I do. And so the science is just going to steamroll right over this. How it happens, I'm the least political guy to try and figure out how the World Health Organization or the DSM guys, whoever that, you know, that's a little bit of a political game to get that stuff named. And more power to all the hardworking people at the Food Addiction Institute that are trying to do that. It just is not my thing, but I want it to happen. I think it's a it's admirable. I personally believe, and Bitten and I disagree on this, and it's going to have to have use disorder after it. Addiction is not going to fly. It's just not going to fly. You're not going to be able to get the entirety of the addiction world change in that manual that says substance use disorder, and then go ahead and name sugar as sugar addiction. Not going to happen. So I don't know what the name will be. It could be processed food addiction or processed food use disorder. I don't know. But it's it has to happen. I think one of the things, if I were ever called to testify or whatever, is like if someone would spend five minutes in my inbox, five minutes on my instant messenger, people two and 300 pounds overweight, losing limbs, going blind, and they still cannot put down the sugar. Doctor says, you'll be dead this year if you do not stop using sugar and carbohydrates in this addictive fashion. And they leave the office and they just go to the 7-Eleven. They can't stop. They're psychologically, physically, emotionally addicted to a substance, right? And that's, I mean, I've been working with addicts for 36 years. It's like, this is the definition of addiction, right? This is like the definition of doing the same thing, expecting different results. And the problem is, is it takes 30 years to kill you. Crack, it only takes 30 months, you know? Opioids, maybe 30 days or whatever. It doesn't, it's just so long. It takes so long. But like I said, it's a tectonic societal shift, like uh, seatbelts in cars and drinking and driving. It's it's just going to take some time. Yeah, I think Dr. Lustig has said to us in interviews before, you know, it's just going to take some of those older folks to die off. To die, right. You know, that's, the, 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 that's, his, that's his plan. Let them die. Yeah, and then the new people. Let them die off. Yeah. And then our mission will be maybe more successful. So Again, hearing you just now say, you know, 36 years doing this kind of work, what are your hopes for food addiction treatment and recovery looking to the future? Like, what are your hopes of seeing of us being able to accomplish in this world? Well, one thing that naming in the DSM is it gives insurance. It gives somebody that can go to treatment. That's a big deal because I think people do need treatment. I think it's helpful. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I don't think I think you can do it without, but I think it's helpful for people that are really addicted. I mean, that I mean, I, I literally have people that don't eat anything but sugar. They don't drink water and they don't eat real food at all. Zero. Like I struggle to understand it, but I do understand it because I work with addicts of all stripes for decades. And so I get it. And but I just don't understand how the well, I guess because I have a tainted view of every day, all day, but I don't understand how the people at the DSM or the World Health can deny this any longer. And moreover, how the average person can deny it. You know, the average person can deny that this is what's causing this. 
It doesn't have to do with your exercise or your calories. It has to do with this addiction to a substance. And so we got to keep pounding the drum. Yeah, no, it is just so interesting because even working in the addiction field for so long until I ended up at treatment myself with Vera, that was the first time I ever heard about sugar addiction. Never. I was on all the diet blogs. I was on (laughs) all, I was an information addict and it was not on anything that I was reading or looking at. And so I absolutely understand that there's still a large population out there that has no idea and is just so in it, they can't see out of it. And Mm -hmm. so that's again, why we do what we do. Right. And speaking of which I heard about this at sugardetox.com. What is this sugar-free man working on? Well, it's uh, a lot. We have a little keto chef summit coming up, a new summit. That's kind of exciting. It's kind of not off topic really, but it's the summit thing is brings the awareness to, I find the keto folks are, and I don't care whether you eat vegetarian or keto, but I find them very sciencey, and they're all wearing continuous glucose monitors and that kind of stuff. And uh, they take like they're always taking their blood, and you know they're they're checking it out. They're doing it very science in a science based way. A lot of them, until Joan Iflin started speaking on their stages, didn't get the addiction piece. Now they're all starting to get that piece, and they're starting to bring more addiction speakers onto their summits and their in-person events. So yeah, I'm just building more awareness. You know, I'm just trying to get the message out there so that people can, because I hear all the stories of how they found us. You know, the first lesson in marketing is like, how did they find you? And it's all different ways. It's just every different way. I mean, internet or the summits or what have you. So however they do it, I want to keep pouring gasoline on that and keep building the awareness. So that's pretty much what we're up to. Just keep bringing the message. So is that the summit that's happening in September? No, that's a, the Quit Sugar Summit. That's the original okay. Quit Sugar Summit. That's the, we got to have you guys on someday, schedule it for January or something, but it kind of full right now. We got like 60 speakers already. It's Whoa. like the Zippy's on this time. And I've had a board member on pretty or two every time. So we'll get you guys on. But yeah, no, it's getting pretty big. It's getting pretty fun that now we have, we can get the bigger names and we can get the bigger promoters who can get the message out. So yeah, we just keep after it. Awesome. So how can our listeners find you? Yeah, sugaraddiction.com is the best way to find everything, pretty much. We got a a book that this, we brought it home from Amazon. It's free now on the website at sugaraddiction.com, The Last Resort Sugar Detox. Uh, You can get a hard copy on Amazon if you want, but the digital version is on the site. I always say there's a quiz there if you want to take the quiz. But if you listen to a podcast like this, you don't need to take the quiz, probably. Just get the book. I wanted to uh, answer one of your thought processes about addiction folks, people who are in addiction, right? That they don't even know. These are people that are sober, 5, 10, 15 years. When I went public with my sub on my blog and stuff after my parents passed away, I had this flood of addicts who had been sober 5, 10 years, and they couldn't put down the sugar. So it's like, look, we have an addiction savvy group who's been on every diet plan in the world except the one that got them that saved their life from substance use disorder, right? I got two coaches, three coaches now 
same scenario. They've been sober X amount of years, but never done the sugar thing. So there's a lot to do if we can't even count on our own compadres in that world to understand this stuff. How the heck are we going to get the message out to people who don't want to hear about it, right? So yeah, it's a challenge every day, every morning. It's a fun one. I like it. I like big, hairy, audacious problems. And this is definitely one of those. Yeah, it's so true. It's like every day we're climbing the mountain and just eventually we will get to that top and get to see like, oh, yes, we've made it. Well, the goal is to get it down to childbearing women. Uh, Absolutely. Somehow the demographic is above 45. And I don't understand it. I really don't. But yeah, well, I think it's it's also so hard to manage in those younger years when you're working and you have a family and you, you know, it's all about the convenience, right? Because society tells us like, you don't need to cook. I've got you. I've got this. Like I was reading the stats about even Canada during the pandemic when nobody was working and takeout went up like 56%, right? And a time when everyone's like, now we have time, now we can cook, now I'm going to start knitting and like do all these things. Nobody did anything but play on their phone and eat food, eat sugar, comfort. Yeah. Well, the, the candy producers say the sugar went up. Yeah. The sugar sales went up through the whole pandemic. Yeah. It's not Folks can also go to the Quit Sugar Summit and just give the email. It's the old one still up, but September's event is September 6th. And uh, whenever you're listening to this might be different, but you can check that out, Quit Sugar Summit. That's a lot of people get their start there because the science is overwhelming. It's just, they can't deny it at that point. And from every angle too, you know, it's like men, women, younger people, older people, it's just, everybody's there. So they're like, yeah, no, I, I remember checking it out however many years ago when I first got into this and like, I just can't even believe how much it's grown so quickly in such a short amount of time, right. With all these like big names that are so eager to get on it. And that's like an amazing thing that you have done for our community. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was a lot, it was was a lot of work and basically a nonprofit for three or four years, but it's kind of turned the corner. So that's good. Good. All right. Well, we have our signature question. And it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugar addiction, what would it be? Mm, I could tell a younger version of myself, sugar addiction, you stump me. All this talking and you stump me. I guess really, um, it's probably not too different than everything we've been talking about. It's like, this is the slow suicide and you've got to be aware. And I like, <laughs> this will be an inside joke at some level, but denial is a route, not an, a river in Egypt. It's like denial is a symptom of the addictive process, an addictive disease. And any level that you're denying this, denying the idea, I always tell people, take a scratch test. Just give me 30, 60, or 90 days. If it doesn't change and nothing changes with the abstinence in those, that time period, then go back to your life and we'll part friends, right? And so I would tell that to myself. And I would have saved myself two years. It took me two full years to quit if someone had, you know, and I like to help people shortcut that two years. So. Good. I love that answer. It's a slow suicide because yeah. that's what it is, right? It Mentally is. and physically. Yeah. And the science is there now on everything, heart disease, Alzheimer's is diabetes three, diabetes two. There are so many in my groups and Verta Health and, and Dr. Unwin in Great Britain's just have passed his hundredth person. Type two diabetes in remission uh, with just food. I mean, 
it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, and people don't, it's a paper tiger. Diabetes 2 is a paper tiger. You go abstinent sugar flour, it'll go away. It, it's like healing up a little cut on your wrist. It'll go away. So lots of messages to get out. You guys are doing a great job. I really appreciate you having me on because I don't get to speak this way on health podcasts, even on addiction podcasts. Half the time, the addiction host says, Mike, I had you on because I can't quit sugar. Oh, no. (laughs) This is is a guy that's sober, famous for addiction podcast stuff. He's like, I had you on because at least they've got that level of self-awareness, you know? But it's true, man. It's like, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't discriminate. Yeah. And I think both Molly and I would agree that this is the hardest addiction of all the other addictions that we work with. So anyone who takes this on is a champion for even trying. I agree. Well, thank you so much for being here and answering all of our questions and just having great conversation. I love it so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really, this is a an honor, actually. So uh, there's getting to be a few more of us, but there's very few of us. We got to stick together. We got to keep this thing rocking and rolling. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait to check out the Quit Sugar Summit too this September. Yeah, go for it. All right, guys, take care. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.